our series for the fall is called Fight Club. We're talking about the kingdom of God in conflict. We want our times together and our times in life group to be training for kingdom conflict. Kingdom conflict uh, happens on so many different levels. It happens between people. It happens within families. It happens as the kingdom of God invades the kingdoms of this world. There is conflict on that level. And then this morning, we're going to be focusing on a very different kind of conflict. We're going to be focused on the conflict that takes place between the kingdom Jesus enacted through his death and resurrection and the powers and principalities that influence the systems of the world and the spirit of the world and the spirit of this age. Now, it's going to be a little bit different because I think this kind of conflict has a direct effect on our lives, but it's the kind of conflict that is the least noticeable when you're not paying attention. When you're not paying attention to it, the conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world is perhaps the most subtle and the most easy to miss, even though it has direct relevance on our daily lives and on our families. And to talk about what it looks like to fight the powers that be, we need to look to both the Old Testament and the New Testament for guidance. Because I believe that God has been taking individuals, families, communities, and nations toward an understanding of who he is, which was revealed in Christ, but also toward an understanding of how his world works, which is the kingdom of heaven, the domain where God is king. And so we got to start in the Old Testament to give a frame and a context for the New Testament, and we're going to read what is perhaps the most misquoted of all Old Testament verses, because it's everywhere. It's like you go into a Christian bookstore and you can put this verse uh, on your bathroom wall. You can have it printed above your bedroom uh, nightstand. You can, you can put Jeremiah 29, 11 pretty much everywhere you want. And at a baptism, it's like the most quoted verse, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, right? But the context of what's happening in this passage in Jeremiah is actually very interesting, and I want to discuss that for a moment, and then we'll get into the text. Before I do that, I want to explain why Jeremiah has become important to me. The book of Jeremiah became important to me because I... I just died. The book of Jeremiah became important to me because I realized that it was the most underread book in my Bible. Everybody's got some underread books in their Bible, right? There are the books that you like to read, the books that are easy to read, and then there are the books that have like 40 names you don't know how to pronounce. And you're like, I don't read through my own genealogy. Why am I reading through the genealogy of someone who died like 4,000 years ago? And then the book of Jeremiah for me was not a book that I had read that frequently. And so what ended up happening was, was I was invited to participate in working on a study Bible this past year. I was actually hired as a writer to, uh, to contribute to this massive team of writers who was all working on this study Bible. And one of the things they asked was, what books would you like to focus on? And in my foolishness, I thought, well, I haven't read Jeremiah that much. 
I'm going to focus on Jeremiah. I had no idea that Jeremiah, as a volume of text, is the largest book of the Bible. It doesn't have the most chapters, but it has the most words in the book. Not only that, but I didn't realize that the book is not arranged chronologically. So if you read it, you read it to a certain point, and then you start reading it basically over again because it's a compilation of different versions that are coming together. Not only that, but I didn't realize that there's one version of Jeremiah that has extra chapters that the other, cha- that the other version of Jeremiah doesn't have. And when scholars went back to figure out which one was the real Jeremiah, they realized that ancient Jewish people used both and never really picked one. And so it's like, are these extra, are these extra chapters uh, biblical or not biblical? And the ancient Jewish people were like, yes. <laughs> Which is a, just a very typical Jewish approach to scriptures. But then I also felt like God had a prophetic purpose for me getting into the text. Check one, two. Okay. I also knew that God had a prophetic purpose for me in reading the book of Jeremiah because I didn't understand it. I wanted to understand it, but I also felt like there was something significant for our times. And boy, was I right. And by the way, I am not intending to unpack the whole book of Jeremiah for us this morning. But I actually think that what happens in chapter 29 is pretty significant, especially when it comes to the kingdom of God in conflict with the kingdoms of the world. Verse 1 is just for context. Verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the book of Jeremiah is actually written, most scholars believe, in retrospect after Israel has been ripped from their homeland. They've been conquered by an enemy kingdom, and then they've been forced into submission in a land they do not belong in. And this exile period is one of the most underappreciated aspects of the Bible because most of the text was actually recorded during the exile period. People were looking to a God who seemed absent in the midst of a kingdom that felt hostile, being stripped from their home, being stripped from their customs, looking to understand where they had gone wrong, looking to understand where God's promises was, even though they were adrift and in a place they didn't belong in. And by the way, the, the, the kingdom of Babylon is not just like another kingdom. It's like the worst kingdom. Like, God calls Babylon a whore in the Bible, I'm not allowed to call people a whore in general. And God put that in the Bible. Like, they're a bad place. Throughout scripture, in pretty much every book, Babylon is set up as being antithetical to God. It's like, the closest thing you get to Satan's kingdom on the earth is the kingdom of Babylon. And here the Israelites have been stripped from their homeland and they've been taken out of their way of life, their culture, their land, and they've been asked 
to remain faithful to God in the middle of a place they don't understand, in the middle of the place they don't belong. Verse 4. This is what the letter of Jeremiah said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is the message of the Lord to them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find welfare. This is the most counterintuitive message Jeremiah could ever give. Because the people of Israel are up against God's biggest enemy. And what they want to hear is that God's going to come through for them. What they end up hearing is that God is going to allow them to be taken captive. And basically brought into slavery in a different land they don't belong in. In a land full of hostility and compromise. And then to top it all off. The cherry on this poop Sunday Is that Jeremiah does not say... Organize an armed resistance against Babylon. He does not say, try to escape from your captivity at any cost. Instead, Jeremiah tells the Israelites, settle down, build houses, plant gardens, and make babies. And you have to think about people who are oppressed and in captivity. And unfortunately, there are places in the world where there still isn't equality and there still isn't civil rights between nationalities and ethnic groups. And you have to think about all the oppressed people you can think of in history being brought into captivity. And you have to think about how wrong and how contradictory it would be to hear from a prophet, settle in, build houses, plant gardens, And pray for the welfare of the place that took you hostage. This feels wrong. It feels like a violation when you understand the context. Even now as I read it thousands of years later, I'm like, that does not feel like the right move. That does not feel like the way we would resist evil. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. This is the crazy thing about Jeremiah's prophetic ministry to Israel. He exemplifies a tradition that Jesus very much considers himself a part of. In fact, if you look at all the prophets of the Old Testament, Jesus and Jeremiah are very, very similar. And Jesus does some things just to fulfill the prophetic example of Jeremiah's life. Like, for example, Jeremiah goes into the temple and he causes a ruckus and he claims that the temple has been taken over as a den of thieves. And so Jesus, many years later, goes into the same temple and he declares that They have made it into a den of thieves. Jeremiah is rejected by pretty much everyone. And of course, in the book of Isaiah, it says he was despised and rejected by men. Jesus died 
the loneliest person on earth, as even his closest followers abandoned him. But Jeremiah, as a prophet, because he is so determined to stand for justice, he's basically alone, and he has no allies. And the nature of the prophetic, as Jeremiah reveals it to us, is that it always stands against the injustices that are systemic in our societies. The nature of the prophetic is that it's always against the kinds of oppression that we turn a blind eye to. And the reason why prophets who speak up against the things that are wrong, the things that are unjust in our world, the reason why they're lonely and they don't necessarily have a lot of friends is because they refuse to compromise in order to kind of get along and make things work. And, and Jeremiah, the word that comes to Jeremiah, he says, don't trust the prophets who prophesy things that make you comfortable with the way the world is. Because these prophets were saying things like, don't worry, God's going to have you back in your homeland in two years. Jeremiah's like, no, that's not the word of the Lord. These prophets were saying things like, don't worry, if you rebel against Babylon... And if you stay in your land, I'm kind of turning this into a New Jersey type of prophet. You're going to be fine. Jeremiah's like, that's also not true. <laughs> but why would these prophets prophesy that way? They were prophesying that way because they, it is very natural and instinctive for us to do the math and think, well, God wants me to be happy and healthy and wealthy, and God wouldn't want me to be uncomfortable, and the best kind of arrangement would be for me to be in my homeland the way I want to be, with my own things, with my own gardens, with my own houses, with my own wealth, with my own comfort. And so therefore, this setback must only be temporary. We have a tradition in our household that the first Sunday back, I get to preach holding our new baby. I want to thank you guys for making meals for us. Those of you who are serving us on this meal train, it's so awesome. It's amazing to have a baby and then not have to immediately try to figure out how to feed everybody but the baby in the days following the birth. Honestly, the food is so amazing that we're thinking about getting pregnant again just so that you'll feed us. But I, I want you to understand something. It's very natural and it's very normal for us to look to the way God is and to make assumptions about the way God's world must be and to create a life that is the most comfortable it can possibly be. And to think that anything that makes us uncomfortable is not from God and is not God's will. And therefore, we try to oppose it or avoid it. When in reality, the tradition of Israel that is carried on by the church is that God's people are always in exile. They don't get a homeland. Jesus said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. The kingdom of heaven is invading the kingdoms of this earth and as such, we are to treat our world like we are foreigners and strangers and sojourners. We are passing through. 
We don't get a homeland even if we want one. We don't get to be comfortable even if we want to be comforted because our agenda is to participate in the loving, peaceful takeover of heaven's reality into this one. So that means God is going to bring our individual lives and our families and our communities into a place where we are uncomfortable for a sacrificial purpose. Because everywhere we look around to try to find a community that works for us, that makes sense for us, that makes us comfortable, we end up finding out that we don't quite fit. We don't necessarily have quite enough elbow room. And it's our dissatisfaction with the way the world is that's supposed to drive us to be a prophetic voice to the world around us. That the king has come. But if we don't observe that this kingdom is in conflict with the kingdoms of this world, that discomfort can actually do us harm. Because we don't embrace our call to exile and instead we become complicit in the powers and principalities that be. Can I give you an example? This maybe feels a little conceptual. For many years, when I saw a person who was homeless or poor asking for money on the street, I was very content with not giving them money because I was okay with making the assumption that they had done something in their life that put themselves in that circumstance. And if I was going to give them money, it certainly was only going to come out of my excess. It wasn't going to come out of my lack. You better believe that I would keep enough money to look after my own meal before I'd give any to someone else. Especially someone who put themselves in that circumstance. And then I was out with a friend named Alan. And we were walking and this man said, hey, do you have any money? Do you have any spare change? He goes, oh yeah. And he literally pulls 20s out of his pockets. I don't know how much money it was. It was literally everything he had. And he just hands it over to him. And there is nothing like generosity to expose a spirit of stinginess in you. And I watched him do it, and I said, I can't, I can't believe you're doing that. You know he's probably just going to go waste that money. He said, I didn't give him that money because I thought he was going to be a good steward of it. I gave him that money because I followed Jesus. Jesus calls me to look after the poor. He's poor. I'm going to look after him, even if it costs me. So in our world today, we can come to a lot of conclusions about the poor that Jesus disagrees with. They're rational, enlightened positions on the poor. But Jesus happens to disagree with them because his world calls us to take care of the poor in spite of the consequences. So you can come up with a philosophy and a rationale for how you treat the poor or for what political party will best serve the poor when meanwhile, Jesus calls you to look after the poor. So the philosophers can argue about what's the best way to deal with poverty, but the Christians who embody the kingdom of heaven that's invading earth are willing to sacrifice. They're actually willing to become uncomfortable. They're willing to move into exile to care for the poor at their own expense. The nature of the prophetic does not come along the way 
The nature of the prophetic does not come alongside the way the world is and tell everyone that everything is going to be okay in the end. The nature of the prophetic comes alongside the way the world is and critiques it because it has hope for the way the world could be. God can be critical without being cynical because he's the most hopeful being in the universe. There are a lot of people who are aware of the problems of our day and they are not prophetic. It's not prophetic to complain and get cynical. It is prophetic to stand in the way of the compromises that everybody's comfortable with to say, this is not okay, but I know that it could be okay because heaven is invading earth. But if you do that, you participate in a prophetic tradition where you're going to feel lonely because every community is built on some level of compromise. This is a very weird Thanksgiving Sunday. I'm sorry. I'm sure some of you were like, can we just talk about thankfulness and just give thanks for a few things? We will get there. I promise. There are two historic ways of forming community. You can build community around shared values, or you can build a community around governing principles. Shared values taken to its natural extreme becomes a religious way of organizing the world. It can be an organized religion, or it could be a shared value of a sports team that ends up feeling a lot like a religion when you get right down to it. People paint their faces, they enact certain rituals, they sacrifice a player who does wrong, right? Misses a kick, an easy kick, and that guy's out of there, right? The coach doesn't make the playoffs, and he is sacrificed for the sake of the team. If you build community around shared values, then you're going to need to enact certain sacraments and certain traditions and customs to make everyone prove that they share the same values as you. Because you can't actually guarantee that someone cares as much as you care about the thing, whether it's like a passion for a sports team or a passion for a religious cause. So what ends up happening is your devotion has to be proven through, through ever-increasing intense sacrifices. The other way you can build a community is you can gather around a governing set of principles. You can, instead of making everyone care about the same things, you can say, look, you can care about different things than I care about, but we're both going to subject ourselves to the same governing law. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you believe about government. If you end up on a desert island with a dozen other people, you're going to have to decide which stream you draw the water from and which stream you poop in. This is the nature of coming together and being a collective, right? We organize our society around principles that we all subscribe to. And in order to get along and have any sense of order, we say, look, you can value different things than I value, but you are going to subject yourself to the principle, and I'm going to subject myself to the principle, and that's how we're going to have peace through this sense of shared order. But the crazy thing about the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is both a set of shared values and it's also a, a governing principle, but it's invading places that ne don't necessarily subscribe to either. Jesus is Lord is our governing principle. There are a lot of Christians that I really can't stand. But I know that if they claim that Jesus is Lord, I consider them part of the family of God. And Christianity, we share a lot of the same values, but it's more than just a set of values. It's more than just a religion where we agree on all the same things. 
The kingdom of heaven is God's world, and God's world is founded and led by a king who does not force everyone to his viewpoint. Instead, the kingdom of heaven is led by a self-sacrificing love incarnate. And it's invading every area and every strata of society, regardless of how it is organized. Because this kingdom is so different than the way the kingdoms of the world are constructed, because this kingdom is not built on a set of principles or a set of values, but it's rather built upon sacrificial love, the people who call us toward this invading kingdom of heaven are always going to rub up against the limits of the way everyone else organizes the world. Like, yeah, Jesus calls us to care for the immigrants, but you can't have a country if you just let in all the immigrants, can you? Can you imagine Jesus standing at the fence saying, I'm sorry, there is no more room for you? What if the world Jesus is constructing, the world you are called to represent, actually contradicts the way nations and political parties want to build the world? Not just some of them, but all of them. What if the way we construct a society either works by submitting to the sacrificial love of Jesus or rubs up against the limits of that sacrificial love? This is why the prophetic is always tempted to get in bed with the power of the state. This, you see this in the Old Testament from the prophet Balaam. He's asked to prophesy against Israel. You also see it with the Pharisees and Jesus. When Jesus is on trial, and they say, well, Jesus claimed, claimed to be king. He needs to be killed. He's coming against Caesar. And of course, the natural question is, well, hey, you're an oppressed, captive people. Don't you want a king of the Jews? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. becomes very easy for us to pick a political party and anoint them to be God's people, God's representatives, to do the mostly right thing on behalf of what we want accomplished for the name of Jesus. But a nationalistic religion bastardizes the community God creates because God calls his people into exile. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Let's say it together. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's say it together. Everyone knows this. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back from the place which I sent you into exile. This verse is really misunderstood because we use it in a way to say, because God loves you and because God cares about you, everything in your life is going to go according to his good plan. When in reality, 
Jeremiah is saying, hey, when you're in a world that's hostile to your community and to your culture, when you're in a world that doesn't like the things you stand for, trust me. It's actually very hard to stand for Christ and his world in a hostile world. It's much more easy, it's much easier to accommodate the way the world is and to become comfortable with certain compromises. And the crazy thing is that they never again return to their homeland the way they think they're going to. The Jews think after 70 years they're going to return from exile, and they do. They do return from exile, but they're still under a foreign superpower. And they're never again the great Israel that they want to be. The Make, the Make Israel Great Again project never gets off the ground. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he declares that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And they go, could he be the Messiah? Could he be the King of Israel? Could he be the one who leads us out of exile? But Jesus closes the book on judgment against Gentiles, against non-Israelite nations. And they're like, how is he ever going to make Israel great again if he's not willing to destroy God's enemies? Like, you actually can't have a country without borders. Or can you? Does the kingdom of heaven have borders? Or is the kingdom of heaven invading every class, every demographic, every ethnicity, every strata of society all around the world? We're called to be a new nation that represents the sacrificial love of Christ to the world around us. And this nation doesn't have the limitations of other nations. This nation doesn't have limits on immigration. This nation doesn't care about the middle class over caring about the poor. This nation doesn't put the economy before the environment. I didn't... <laughs> I didn't expect so many amens. Like, you guys just need to calm down. <laughs> the sense of discomfort that you're feeling, I feel too. I feel this discomfort because I know that if I wanted to vote for Jesus, I couldn't because he'd never get his political campaign off the ground. Do you want to know what Jesus would run on if Jesus ran for president? He'd probably run on the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, for my nation belongs to them. In Luke chapter 6, Sermon on the Plain, blessed are the poor. Not the poor in spirit, the poor. Jesus' opening platform, the plank of his platform is, my party and my nation prioritizes the poor. My world belongs to them. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That means that it's not all about production and consumption, and limiting yourself is actually a good thing. Meekness is restrained strength. What if we inherit the world, like the good world that God gave us, by restraining our strength? <laughs> if we don't care to stand in exile for the things God cares about, we will build a community that compromises with culture that promises us comfort. If we don't find our place in exile, 
If we don't find our place of discomfort, of knowing that God has actually led us out of the way the world is presently arranged into a new kind of temporary arrangement where we're foreigners and we're strangers and we're sojourners. And you know what? This world is not quite my home and it's not necessarily a great fit, but I'm representing another place. If we don't do that, then we will move into communities that have made compromises for the sake of comfort. And we will say things like, I left that church three months ago because, you know, it just wasn't feeding me. As though the highest priority of a church is to feed you. We're actually an outpost on the edge of God's world invading this one. This isn't a feeding trough. But it becomes easy and natural for us when we think that our highest priority is comfort. It becomes easy for us to go, I don't actually like this place of exile. I don't like the fact that the preacher keeps talking about money and how much I could give. I know what's best for me and my family. We will either gravitate to that or we will gravitate towards systems of the world that organize things differently. You know what I've noticed? I've noticed that people who give up on organized Christian expression tend to become more political by nature. One of the greatest... One of the greatest things we've gotten wrong in the past 30 years is we've said that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's a relationship, but it's also a religion. Like, we do religious things. We get together, we submit to one another, we encourage one another, we worship together, we give financially, we subject ourselves to a holy text. When we gave up the fact that it's a religion and we made it all about a relationship, We made people's participation in God's new world kind of optional. And what ends up happening is the people who drift away from that have to find another way to change the world. So they become super opinionated about politics on both the left and the right, not realizing that both the left and the right are compromised versions of a different kingdom. And you're not going to find one party or one platform that's going to represent the Beatitudes. So you're going to have to realize that you're living in exile and you're going to have to deal with the discomfort of that and you're going to have to look to build a different kind of world. It's like, well, how do you do that? It's really simple. Build houses, plant gardens, have babies. What? What we're doing here as a small little community is a microcosm of returning to the Garden of Eden. When we recognize that we live in a world that's hostile to the interests of Christ, and yet we don't compromise on them, the highest and the best way we fight against the powers and the principalities is to simply create a community of sacrificial love where we care for one another, where we break down the boundaries of race and class, where we serve one another and where we honor everyone.
So what kind of community of exiles are we creating? As exiles, what kind of community are we creating in the world? I want to quickly take you through this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 17 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. We are called to create a land of mercy. In a world where justice looks like winners and losers, when a world where boundaries are determined by who's in and who's out, a land of mercy has a new chosen race that transcends our racial backgrounds. We're a kingdom of priests, which means that we represent God to the people around us and we represent those people to God. And we're a holy nation because God has formed a new country and it's the only country he has preferential interest in. God does not anoint and appoint political leaders to do the work he gave to Jesus. Early Christians were not thrown to the lions because they believed in a different God than the Romans did. The Romans were polytheistic and they were actually really comfortable with different gods and goddesses. Early Christians were thrown, thrown to, the, well, the, to the lions because they proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. And that titer, title was reserved for Caesar. Caesar was the king of kings and the lord of lords. You can worship any god and you can follow any leader as long as he's submitted to Caesar. Christians said, we're going to take the titles that were reserved for Caesar and we're going to proclaim them about Jesus. And they were killed for it. <laughs> Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are actually not commanded to be a good citizen. You are commanded to be a foreigner and an exile. Paul says, as, or sorry, Peter says, as an exile and as a sojourner, make sure your conduct is good before everyone. Because when you stand for the way of Christ, you are going to run afoul of people who claim you are being evil. But let your conduct prove that the world you represent only has good intentions for everyone. You are not commanded to vote. You are commanded to pray. I wish the pulpit was bigger so I could duck on this one. Am I saying that you shouldn't vote? No, please. If you feel called to vote, vote. I believe in the freedom that our democracy affords us. But I believe that we as Christians are commanded to pray for our leaders. And one of the signs that we've submitted to the powers and principalities is Christians care far more about who they vote for than who they pray for. They've subjected themselves to the political process enough where they believe their vote is more powerful than their prayers. And their prayers only serve as a fulcrum to change the vote. We are not called to vote. We are called to pray. And not pray with an agenda that we manipulate through God's power leaders to serve our interests. 
We are called to pray prayers of honor so that our authority is used for the benefit of others. If you're going to vote, you want to know what the Christian vote is? The vote that looks after someone else's best interest. I'm going to vote for such and such a party because I want lower taxes. I'm going to vote for such and such a party because I want better social services for me and my kids. The Christian vote, if there is such a thing, the Christian vote is the vote that cares more about the marginalized and the oppressed that do not have a voice than getting your own voice to be heard. And the Christian vote is subject to the prayers of the saints, which are about honoring everyone who is placed in authority, regardless of whether or not they're hurting you. See, we use these verses that talk about honoring our authority in a way that we forget the context of when they were first written. We're going to read it in a minute. It says, honor the emperor. Do you know who the emperor was? And do you know what he was willing to do to Christians? What Peter and Paul are saying about honor is not be okay with the way the world is. What he's saying is the person that's oppressing you, the person that's hunting you down, it doesn't even necessarily have to be your political leader. It can be your boss. My boss is such a bag. I can't say that, right? Because he's sitting right there. But <laughs> the person that has the authority to make the world better and is actually making it worse still deserves your honor and your respect. We do not win the war against the broken way the world is through dishonor. Right. Yeah. You want to know one of the most beautiful pictures of this I've seen in recent months? In Hong Kong, there's an extradition bill trying to go through, and it's, and it's being uh, pushed by Chinese nationalists who have an influence over Hong Kong, and they want it to be possible that if you break the law in Hong Kong, you get extradited to mainland China to serve your prison sentence in China. And because China is communist, and uh, Hong Kong is kind of this separate democratic state, the people of Hong Kong are like, this is a way for China to use the mechanism of the law to extradite whoever they want into our country, and they will eventually take us over through phony laws and phony charges. So millions of people have crammed the streets to the point where they can barely stand still because the whole crowd moves as one sea of people. And you know how they protest? They protest by singing the song, Sing Alleluia to the Lord. Have you heard this? They sing, Sing Alleluia to the Lord. Sing Alleluia to the Lord. And here's the beautiful thing about what they're doing. Everyone knows in the middle of these protests that churches are open and available for you to get water and food and shelter in case the protest turns violent. And it is starting to turn violent. But the second reason why they sing this song is so that those who would claim the protesters are acting violently have to come up against a person who may not even be a believer who is singing a worship song to the Lord. And you can watch YouTube videos. If we had time, I'd show you one where you listen to this worship song echo through the canyons of these buildings in downtown Hong Kong. As a Christian worship song has become the anthem of protest, not for the sake of Hong Kong per se, but for the sake of freedom and liberty for everyone. <laughs> we 
We live in a world that is waging war against our souls because we self-constrain our passions, our viewpoints contradict every other cultural statement and boundary. Brazilian bishop Helier Camara said, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. When Christians want to care for the environment over the economy, Wendell Berry says, the care for the earth is our most ancient and most worthy, and after all, our most pleasing responsibility. To cherish what remains of it and to foster its renewal is our only hope. We have lived our lives by the assumption that what we... What was good for us would be good for the world. We have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires us to make the effort known. Sorry. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and learn what is good for it. Christians believe in the sanctity of all life from natural conception to natural death. Mother Teresa said, any society where a mother can kill her unborn child is a society founded upon violence. Pope Francis said, all life has inestimable value that even, sorry, all life has inestimable value, even the weakest and most vulnerable, the sick, the old, the unborn, the poor, are all masterpieces in God's creation, made in his image, destined to live forever and deserving of the utmost reverence and respect. Christians are pro-life before the baby is born, when the baby is born, and all the way through the baby's life. There is no expiry on the sanctity of human life to a Christian. Again, I'm just trying to give you a Christian platform. I'm also shooting all hopes of political aspirations. I had, I had a, <laughs> a social studies teacher told me, tell me that I could be the prime minister of Canada if I put my mind to it and maybe uh, studied French. And I can't do that anymore. So sorry, Mrs. Basich. I've ruined my political aspirations because I actually believe that abortion is wrong and is broken. And I also believe that destroying the environment for the sake of the economy is also wrong and is also broken. And I also believe that there shouldn't be any limits on immigration. You say, how can you have a country if there's no limits on immigration? Well, I'm, I'm, spoiler alert, I actually care more about the kingdom of heaven than I care about Canada. And if the kingdom of heaven violates the way Canada is constructed, I'm actually okay with that because I'm living in exile. You say, well, your political views aren't sustainable. Yes, that's why I'm not in politics. <laughs> Am I saying that Christians shouldn't be in politics? No, my dad is on city council. A guy in my life group, Brad Redekop, is running for the conservative nomination for Saskatoon West. But if you engage in politics, you have to realize you're engaging in compromise. Compromise isn't necessarily a dirty word. But you have to realize as an exile and as a sojourner, your role is not to participate in the brokenness of culture for the sake of just becoming okay with it. Your role is, as an exile, to realize that you're accommodating the way the world is to bring the light and the love of Christ into those places. Because I, because I mentioned abortion, I'll even go here. <laughs> Do you know that the, the, the earliest Christians, and I've said this before, but I will say it again. Did you know that the earliest Christians in ancient Rome, it was not just okay to have an abortion. It was also okay to commit infanticide. If you didn't have the, uh, the ability to take care for a child, you could just leave it at the dump. Do you know how Christians responded to that? They didn't organize a political rally. They went to the dump, and they took the babies that people were giving away to death. 
and they adopted them. And they gave them Christian names. You know when it became wrong in Rome to kill your baby by dropping it off at the dump? When they realized that there were whole Christian communities with 40, 50 kids per family that were all named Peter and Paul (laughs) and Stephen. Named after the apostles and the Jewish prophets. They went, we need to do something about this. You are not commanded to compromise on these values. If you do, Jesus says you're building your house on the sand. Communities that pick and choose what parts of the Beatitudes, Christian communities that choose which parts of the Beatitudes they want to champion and which parts of the Beatitudes they want to ignore will eventually lead to political compromise. Compromise is not a bad thing when you realize that you are an exile agent a representative of a foreign country. Compromise is a bad thing when you're saying, I'm actually okay with this broken thing the way it is. So this is how we fight. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by those to punish evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. A community of radical submission is an outpost of heaven in a hostile world. It will be hard and it will feel lonely, but this kind of community will not be overcome. I've been thinking a lot about the kind of world I'm going to leave for my kids. I've been thinking a lot about how I want to make the world a better place. And I've realized that even quite recently, I have subjected myself to a political spirit that has convinced me to take sides and to maybe even be tempted to endorse one party as God's blessed, anointed party. And it gets really bad and really ugly the closer we get to an election. Because there are forces that are trying to grab our allegiance. They're trying to grab our voice and our freedom. And they're trying to co-opt it for their own agenda. And I'm trying to let you know something very important as we move towards a federal election. You are free. You are free for freedom's sake. But Paul says, use your freedom as an opportunity to serve other people. Do not let yourself be subjected to the political spirit of this age that puts compromises and limitations like weeds into the field of the gospel. Christ's world is good news for the poor. It's good news for the environment. It's good news for the unborn. It's good news in a way that contradicts the platform of every major political party. You say, well, then how do we change the world? Plant gardens. 
Build houses. Have kids. Create a land of mercy, an environment of freedom where our kids can grow up serving the Lord, learning to love one another, learning to care for the outsider, the immigrant, the poor. Let's create an outpost where we realize we are actually not first Canadian citizens. We're actually first foreigners coming from the kingdom of heaven. And the world we are called to create is a world that welcomes everyone. It's a world that doesn't believe in the limitations of either major political party. It's a world that's constructed around mercy as our highest and best value because we have received mercy, so we too give mercy to other people. Now, we wanted to finish these messages with a section called Getting in the Ring. If you thought my message was uncomfortable... I want us to close our eyes. Peter takes all this instruction for Christian community in exile and he distills it down to a handful of sentences. I'm going to read them and then we're going to go through them. And I'd just like you to just meditate in your own heart. We're only going to take a minute. But I would just like you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if there's anything that convicts your heart, I would like you to uh, make it right with the Lord. And make it right with your trusted community. Peter says, honor everyone. So my question to us is this. Are there people you have dishonored with your words? Are there leaders you have dishonored in your heart? Have you gotten on Facebook and made unfair criticisms of a political leader? Have you in private conversation spoken about Trump or Trudeau or Scheer or whoever in a way that you know does not represent your actual King and Lord, Jesus Christ? Lord, we repent for the places in our heart where we have permitted dishonor to reign. As your representatives, as representatives of your world, we ask you to forgive us. For the places where we have dishonored our boss, where we have dishonored our mayor, where we have dishonored our pastor, where we have dishonored our prime minister, where we have dishonored any authority that we are subject to, God, we repent As your ambassadors, as ambassadors of another world, we want to represent your value of honor. And we know there is no injustice that permits us to act in a dishonorable way. Peter says, love the brotherhood. When was the last time you gave sacrificially to create a sense of community with someone else? A lot of people find their way into communities that are built on comfort. But we as Christians are called to love the brotherhood. We're called to create community by living sacrificially.